today we get to start a new series on faith, work, and generosity. Um, we're going to be talking about how does God relate to our day-to-day work? What does generosity look like? Um, what, is, what does greed look like versus contentment? And what does uh, it look like to honor God with our money? So it's my privilege to, to begin this series, and I'm trying to set the stage for what Ernie will share in upcoming weeks. How do we think about our work in relation to our faith, and, in re- and specifically in relationship to God? What is God's purpose for our work? So that's where we're going today. But before we begin, I want to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll come to the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for being our creator. You have created us. You sustain us. You have put us in the place that we are to serve you exactly where we are. Lord, open our eyes to see how we may serve you in the places that we live, uh, in the places that we work, in our workplaces, in our families, among our friends, in our schoolwork. Lord, show us how to live not just our Sunday lives, but our whole lives from Monday to Sunday, glorifying you, honoring you. Be with us now. Open your word to us. Teach us that we might be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you a story. This is um, a study from the 1980s. There was a psychologist, his a psychologist and a professor named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. It's a Hungarian name, pretty challenging. Uh, he conducted this study many years ago in the 80s um, with his colleague, Judith Lefebvre. And what they did was this. They, they recruited 78 workers in Chicago from four different businesses. And they gave each of these workers a, an, an electronic pager. That shows you how long ago it was. It was when they were pagers. Uh, this was before cell phones. And, and so these pagers were programmed to beep randomly seven times each day. And whenever it would beep, they would have to answer a questionnaire about what they were doing, what kind of activity they were engaged in, what kinds of challenges they were facing, what skills they were using, and what their psychological state was. For example, did they feel motivated or satisfied? Were they feeling engaged or creative? And the goal was to learn how people spend their time on and off of work, off the job, and to see how their activities influence their quality of experience. So it's pretty interesting what the results were. They were surprising. They found that people were happier and more satisfied when they were engaged at work than in their activities during their leisure hours. Very fascinating. During their off work time, they felt bored and anxious. However, they would still say that they did not want to go to work. So when they, <laughs> when they were at work, they wanted to be off work. When they were off work, the last thing they wanted to do was go to work. And so uh, the authors write, this is what they say, we have the paradoxical situation of people having many more positive feelings at work than in leisure, yet saying that they wish to be doing something else when they are at work, not when they are in leisure. And another writer reflecting on this study comments, he says, we're terrible, the the experiment revealed, at anticipating which activities will satisfy us 
and which leave us discontented. So the, the experiment also reveals something else about us. It reveals something about our own human nature. And it is this. We were made to work and to find satisfaction in our work. However, our relationship with work is paradoxical. We dread it, we avoid it, and yet at the same time we find enjoyment and meaning in our work. It can be degrading or dignifying. It can be a toilsome chore or an engaging challenge. And at times it can be overwhelming, at times it can be uh, enjoyable. What accounts for this paradoxical relationship that we have with work? And to answer this, we're going to come to Scripture um, and to remember who we are, where we came from, and where we are now and where we are going. And so in many ways, the story of work in our lives parallels our own stories as God's creatures. So we're going to come to the beginning. We're going to go to Genesis. We're going to, um, and what we find there in Genesis, is, in Genesis is that from the beginning, God is a worker. He is a maker and a gardener. We work because God works. Just look at a few things from Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So God is a maker. He's a worker. He's a fashioner of humanity. And then it says that he's also a gardener in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So God, from the very beginning of the Bible, is portrayed as one who works. He does things. He fashions things with his hands. In Psalm 8, verse 3, it says that the heavens are the work of God's fingers. And, and, and God didn't just stop working when he created everything. He didn't create the universe and start the, the, the clock of the universe ticking and then walk away. God is the sustainer and the continually, he's the sustainer and continual provider for his creation. We see in Psalm 104 that it says this about God, that he causes the springs to gush forth in the valleys. And in verse 14, the grass to grow for livestock. So God is the one who keeps things going the way they are going. Uh, he causes things, even now, to be what they are and to do what they do. And then in Psalm 121, it says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is continually watching over his people. God is not just a worker who worked sometime in the past at creation. He's working even now, watching over his people. So this, is, this, this teaches an important truth about who God is. Um, work, when you, look at, when you look at God and you look at work, we realize that work is not something that is in itself evil. Work is not evil. It is not denigrating. But work is what God himself does. Before sin or evil ever entered into the world, there was work. And it was God who was doing the work. So God is not above work. 
And you could say that work itself is divine because it is the activity of God. So this, this really is surprising, I think, for many of us. The way that we think about work today, we often think that you work and you work and you work to, towards the goal of not having to work anymore. You, know, you retire and then you're doing nothing. Like you, I, I was talking to somebody last night, one of their friends was saying, you know, I've worked hard my whole life and now I want to do nothing. I want to retire and just do, just do nothing. I don't want to work anymore. And this is actually similar to the way that ancient people thought about work as well. Um, and this, this really highlights the uniqueness of the God of the Bible versus the stories of other civilizations. You think about the Greeks. So there was a Greek author, his name was Hesiod. He was a contemporary of Homer, and he wrote a book called Work and Days. And in that, uh, in that book, he envisions a lost golden age when humans lived on the earth like gods. They were free from care, free from labor, and free from grief. And so they would spend their days in festivities, kind of like the gods living on Mount Olympus in leisure. So work in this picture is beneath the dignity of the gods. The gods don't work. And maybe one day there was, one day before, before evil entered into the world, there was a time when people also didn't have to work. That's the Greek vision of how we should think about work, that it's beneath the gods. Similarly, in the ancient Near East, in, in the city of Babylon, they had, a, they had their own uh, story about work and the story about the origin of people. It's very interesting. There's the, uh, and they have a creation myth called the Enuma Elish. And in that, you hear the god Marduk. Marduk is the god of Babylon. And he talks about when he created humanity and why he created humanity. This is what he says. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Verily, savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods, that they might be at ease. So in the Babylonian worldview, human beings were made to serve the gods so that the gods could be idle and at ease. Humans are the slaves of gods in this picture. Just think how different is the biblical story of the world. God creates humanity not so that we can do the work that is beneath him, beneath his dignity. No, he creates us to join him in the work that he is doing. He creates us in his image. When God created humanity in chapter 1, it's just a beautiful picture of the meaning of human life and God's love and care for us and the privilege that he has given us as his creatures. So listen to chapter 1 in Genesis, verses 26 to 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So think about this, this picture of God creating us. He creates us in his image to take part in the same work that he himself has done. 
So he brings order to creation. God separates the, the light from the darkness. He separates the, 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 the sea from the dry land. And then he apportions places for his creatures. He puts the, sea, the fish, they, they get the ocean, they get the, the sea. The birds get the air, and then the land is for the, the land animals. God has brought order to his creation. And then he made people in his image to continue that work of creating by filling the earth and exercising his same characters as we uh, reproduce, as we spread across the earth to subdue it and to have dominion over it. So theologians call this passage that we just read the cultural mandate. God gave us work to do before there was ever any sin in the world. God charges us to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. And that, that doesn't mean to exploit the earth. It means to develop it, to cultivate it, and to draw out its potential. God gave us work. That's chapter 1 of Genesis. But we also see in chapter 2 a continuation of the same theme. When God creates Adam, he also plants a garden called Eden. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God is a gardener. He plants the garden, and then he puts Adam to be in the garden, to be a gardener as well, to reflect God's own character and nature in the garden. Adam was to work and keep the garden. Eden was not a luxury garden, like some Mount Olympus, where the, he just drinks you know, the, the drink of the gods and relaxes all day. No, he had work to do. It was the home base from which Adam and Eve would be fruitful. They would multiply and fill the earth with other images of God. In faithful obedience to their maker, they would subdue and cultivate the earth to God's glory. So our work, human work, is to be patterned after God's work. Um, author and uh, theologian uh, Leland Riken writes this. He says, the work of God even though it is unique, you know, we don't create from nothing, right? We don't create that way. We have to start with stuff. Even though God's work is unique, it remains a model for human work. The work of God is creative. It's orderly. It's constructive. It is universal, and it benefits people and other creatures. It declares the very nature of God and bears his imprint or signature. Human work can do no better than emulate God's our work should emulate, should imitate God's work. So this is really good news for us when you think about it. Um, the goal of the Christian life isn't just to, to get saved and to get other people saved. I remember I was working uh, in my 20s. I was actually working at Chick-fil-A. I'm just having conversations with people in the, in the kitchen. This is what we talked about, this kind of stuff. Um, and I was asking him, you know, okay, so once everybody in the world is saved, then what do we do? Just sit and wait? What are we supposed to do? God has called us to something before there was ever the problem of sin that we need to be redeemed from. Um, and that, that goal is to develop the earth and to cultivate it and to reflect his image back to him. So our goal is to live and to work as God's image bearers, to imitate God by creating, constructing, and bringing order to the world, all for the benefit of his creation and the benefit of other creatures all, again, to the glory of God. 
So it's not just pastors or Bible teachers or missionaries that are doing the work of God. If you are a businessman or a tradesman, an engineer, a caregiver, a lawyer, an educator, if you are a student, students, your job is to be a student and to be a good student. There's also moms and dads. That's real work. And then you think of people who have retired from their main career. There's still work to be done even in your retirement. We are called to work with our lives. That's what God has created us for. That's what he's called us to. That's what he's charged us with. Work is good and dignified because it is from God. And we find satisfaction in our work because that's what we were made for in the first place. But the truth is this. You know, we don't always find satisfaction in our work, right? Sometimes it is toilsome. Sometimes it, it wearies us. Sometimes it makes us feel small. Sometimes it feels empty or futile. What happened? Well, the, the answer is that sin entered the world. And this is the second point for today. Sin causes work to become toilsome and futile and abusive. Think about this. Work is futile and toilsome. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They rebelled against his generous rule. He had given them absolutely everything, the whole earth. He told them not to eat of one tree, but that was too much for them. They could not accept God's authority in that. They could not accept their identity as creatures. They wanted to become like God and to take his place and to live independent of God. So they broke their relationship with God, and by rejecting his word, they came under a curse. Not just them, but the whole of creation, including us, came under a curse. And that curse corrupted every relationship in their lives. Their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, their relationship with the ground, and their relationship with work. So listen to what God says in Genesis chapter 3. This is what he says to Adam and specifically relating to work. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. It's a bleak picture. Here we can see two things. But first of all, notice that after the fall, work doesn't end, work doesn't stop after the fall, it just is changed, it's perverted, it's corrupted. But we see two things in this passage. One is that work becomes toilsome. The second is that work becomes futile. It's only with pain that we will eat of the earth's produce. Only with sweat and hard work will we get our bread. And so the earth itself rises up against us with thorns and thistles to hinder our work. And we will work the ground and work the ground and work the ground until we return to the ground. Dust you are and to dust you shall return, is what the Lord says. And King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes talks about this weariness, this toilsome nature and this futile nature of work. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11, he said, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold... All was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And again, he continues in verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? 
for all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. It's emptiness. So that phrase, that phrase, under the sun or beneath the sun, it is a, it's Solomon's way of describing a life that is lived without reference to God. It is a purely this-worldly, materialistic view of life. This is all there is. There is no transcendence. There is nothing permanent. And this is what it looks like when there's nothing transcendent, when there's nothing permanent. We toil and toil, and then we decay into dust. And you, us, everything that we do in life, all the work that we do, everything that we accomplish will be forgotten just like you will be forgotten. And if you stop to think about it, this is so true. You know, you, you know some people from history, right? That we, we, we know about Homer's, we know about um, a, a Hesiod or a Shakespeare, but the vast majority of people are not going to be remembered. Just, just stop and think for a moment about your own, your own great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents. Just try a little experiment here. Show of hands, who can name their great-grandparents? That's good. How about great-great-grandparents? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But I see only two hands right now. <laughs> That's pretty good. Our culture just forgets. And one day we will be forgotten. And if life is just what's here, there's nothing transcendent, nothing permanent, we will be forgotten too. Um, and our work, all that we've done will be forgotten. So when you live independently of God, work loses its purpose. The purpose of work is to glorify God. Um, and maybe you've heard that word. That's kind of like a churchy word, to glorify God. Um, basically, that's a shorthand way of saying to reflect God's character and his nature in your life and to serve him with your life. So when we glorify God, it means we're going to reflect who he is in his character, in his attributes, and to serve him with our lives as opposed to serving ourselves. So to glorify God, God means to live a God-centered life as opposed to a self-centered life. Um, because there's, there's trouble. There's trouble here. When you live independently of God, you, you unhinge the purpose of work. You unhinge work from its purpose, and you unhinge, you unhinge humanity from its identity. So think about this. If God is not our creator, then we are not his image. And so we lose any place or any foundation on which to base human value and human dignity. And so we lose the value of our work and we lose the value of our neighbors. And so without work's true purpose and without the dignity of human beings, not just ourselves, but of everybody, work itself becomes abusive. Work becomes abusive when we substitute the glory of God for some other purpose. And we start to treat people as means to an end instead of something to be valued in themselves. So consider how this works. Suppose you measure work purely by efficiency and whether it turns a profit. That's typically how we think about work in, in the States. Is it efficient? Meaning, is it, can we do it cheaply? Can we do it quickly? And does it turn a profit? Now, these are, these are important considerations, but they're not the only consideration. And when they become ultimate, then work itself becomes abusive. So, uh, for example, 
if you make those ultimate, it completely sidesteps the issue of whether or not what you are making is actually good, actually benefiting people. Are you benefiting consumers by what you do, or are you using them? Are, and is what you're making actually worth making? Dorothy Sayers, she was writing um, in the middle of the 20th century, thinking about our commercialistic age, and she says this. She says, the greatest insult which a commercial age has offered to the worker has been to rob him of all interest in the end product of the work and to force him to dedicate his life to making badly things which were not worth making. So if you just measure your work by, well, is this going to give me the kind of paycheck that I want? Is this going to produce profit for the company? Then it completely ignores the issue of whether what you're making is actually of good quality and if it's actually worth making in the first place. But there's more to this. If, if profit and efficiency are the measure of valuable work that completely excludes the kinds of works that we do which don't get paid, you know, especially the two very important jobs, which is mother and father. Nobody pays me to change my son's diapers. But that is important, necessary work. And it's good, at least in the result. It's good. Um, and I, reading to my sons is, is not something that I try to do efficiently. If you try to read efficiently with them, you kind of lose the value and meaning and influence of it. But those are all very important things. Um, there's a writer, his name's Anthony Etelin. He was reflecting on, on, on motherhood and the way that our society kind of looks down on, on people who will stay home instead of getting into the workforce. And he says this, to do 50 things in one day for which you alone are responsible for the immediate good of the people you love is deemed easy, trivial, beneath the dignity of a rational person. But to push memoranda written in legal patois from one bureaucratic office to another, at great public expense, and for no clear benefit to the common good. Now that is the life. <laughs> it's silly the way that we, are, are, are the values of the world, this measuring things by efficiency and profit, have perverted our, our views of work. When, in fact, um, mothering and fathering are some of the most important things, most valuable and meaningful works that we can possibly do, even though we're not going to get paid for it. Unpaid work can be so important, so meaningful. So don't let the world's fallen value system hijack your life and, and substitute its view of work for God's view of work. And you know we, we don't have time to touch on all the different ways that employers and employees can abuse one another. Just think about how employees, uh, through idleness uh, or just outright theft, will steal from their 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 employers, or, or just pulling a paycheck with minimal and bad work, or the way that employers will overwork their employees to the detriment of that employee himself or herself and to their family. People are exploited, people are shamed, they're threatened, and they're valued only as means to an instead of as valuable in themselves. And this is where we get that saying, um, business is business. And that, that phrase, it just, it just means, basically, because business is business, I can treat you badly and poorly and do things that are unchristlike. Because that's the way the world works. That's the value system of the world. Business is business, so it's okay. 
That's not how God calls us to work. That is not the way work is meant to be. Work is not bad in itself. Something is wrong with work because there's something wrong with us. We have disconnected work from its purpose. We pursue it for ourselves and for profit instead of for the glory of God. So just examine your own view of work. How have you thought about your career, about the work that you do? Why do you work? Do you reflect the goodness of your creator in your work? Do you benefit his creatures and his creation in your work? Or do you work selfishly just to acquire more for yourself and for your own? Is the work you are doing good in itself? Do you use people in your work? Are you mistreating people in your work, threatening them, shaming them, criticizing them for shortcomings? Or do you honor them as people created in the image of God? You know, maybe, maybe you are really feeling the toil and the futility of work right now. And it's just one thing after another with no end in sight. And you feel like you're just working and working and working yourself into the ground. And maybe you have been mistreated by your coworkers or by your superiors. There is there's good news for you. See, work does not have to be this way. You know, we have rebelled against God, but God, whom we have tried to live without, he has not abandoned us to the curse of sin. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to restore us to himself, to restore the relationship that we broke. So Jesus lived a, the perfect life. He lived in perfect dependence upon his heavenly father, the way that we ought to live. He is the image of the invisible God. He is, as Hebrews says, the exact imprint of God's nature. And when he was on the earth, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He also said, my father is working until now, and so I am working. So what was Jesus' work? He worked redemption for God's people. He took the curse of sin upon himself when he died upon the cross. And then, in his resurrection, he proves that he has broken the power of sin on our lives. And he holds out new, powerful, spirit-empowered resurrection life for everyone who follows him. He calls people to himself. Listen to that call that he has in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Work doesn't have to be toilsome. It doesn't have to be futile or abusive. Christ came to redeem us from the curse. So come to Jesus, and he will give you rest. He will destroy the power of sin in your life. And in Christ, you can live as the restored image of God, as you were meant to live. And the wonderful thing about redemption, when God saves us, he doesn't just redeem us or just part of us or just our Sunday selves. He redeems all of us. And he, God redeems us. And when he redeems us, he also redeems our work. So when we come to follow Jesus, that transforms us and transforms the way that we view work, the way that we do work. This is what he says um, 
This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do in life ought to be oriented towards glorifying God. We work to glorify God in our professions and our jobs. That means we reflect his character, his goodness. We make good things that benefit his creation. And this also means that when we work, we don't work out of our own strength and out of our own power, but we work in dependence upon him. And not, not just independence upon him, but in accordance with the way that he's made things. God has made the earth a certain way. And when you try to live contrary to that, you, you hurt yourself and you hurt the earth. Just think about the way um, farmers need to be very uh, aware of the way God has created the, the world, the way that the earth and the ground work, the way the seasons work. You have to be so attuned to the, to the nature of creation in order to live in accord with it. And if you try to live out of accord with it, you're going to either not produce a crop or you're going to do things that ultimately destroy the ground and make it unfruitful. So think about it. Every talent that you have, every skill that you have, who you are, every dollar that you earn is a gift from God. We are stewards of God's gifts. They belong to him, but he's given them to us to reflect his nature. Just think about um, the, the warning that Moses gives to Israel before they go into the land. They're about to get this wonderful gift from the Lord, and he says to them this, Deuteronomy 8, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. We work for God's glory, independence upon him, and this changes the way that we work. So the goal of work has changed to the glory of God, and now the way that we work also changes. So look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. It says, Paul's again writing to the church. He's talking about what a transformed life in Jesus Christ looks like. He says, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So here, Paul is primarily speaking to employees. Um, he's speaking to bond servants. Um, we don't have the same kind of social relationships that they did 2,000 years ago. Um, the best parallel would be employees and employers. But here's talking to employees. He says, you're not just working to please the person that you're working for or to uh, please the people that you're working with. Your primary audience is God himself. So work heartily. That means work with warmth and sincerity. Work with enthusiasm and work with enjoyment. Why? Because you are working, you are serving the Lord in your work. And it pleases God when he sees his image bearer reflecting his character and his nature. You please God in your work when you do it well. But Paul also speaks to employers. Um, he speaks, says this in, in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And then again, in Ephesians chapter 6, he writes to masters, telling them to stop their threatening. He's trying to change the relationships that we have with one another in our work. Christ has come. He's relativized it. 
You may have authority over people here on earth, but that doesn't mean that you have the right to, to shame them, to threaten them, to denigrate them. Because when you do that to an image bearer of God, you are insulting the one who made him. Wow. People are valuable in themselves, so we must honor them as God's creatures, as God's image. And when we, when we change the goal of our work, when we change the way that we work, our work itself becomes a witness to the world. Um, we declare to our neighbors that work is not just some toilsome task. We are not just living under the sun, waiting until we return to the dust. No, life is more than this. And God promises to make all things new. And he starts with his people, the church, by giving them his spirit, the spirit that will soon characterize the whole new age. And when Christ returns, when Christ returns in glory, he's going to renew all things. He's going to renew the creation. The new heavens and the earth are going to descend out of heaven, and there will still be work, but it will be glorified, good work, unperverted by sin, uncorrupted by our sin. So maybe, maybe you're still in doubt. Like Maybe you really don't like your job. <laughs> maybe it's not satisfying. Um, maybe you still don't see the meaning in it, the value in it. I want to submit to you the life of Jesus. Just think about this. The, the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Bible says that it is through him that all things were made. He took on human flesh, born as a child, grew up, and for the first 30 years of his life, he just lived in his family, and he worked as a carpenter, as a tradesman, probably making furniture, um, working with wood, building houses. That's what he did for the first 30 years of his life. Just thinking about that, God of the universe spends the lion's share of his life just working, providing for his family. That does a lot to transform the way that we think about our own work, that it has dignity in itself, meaning in itself. Do you think that Jesus, during those 30 years, was just thinking to himself, this isn't my real job. <laughs> this doesn't matter. And so he was saying, uh, so he was thinking that, and then as a result, his work is shoddy and not very good. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, but cards on the table, the Bible doesn't actually tell us much about this time in Jesus' life. We do know that he worked as a carpenter. Um, it doesn't say anything about the quality of his work at this time, but I, I have a guess, this is a guess, informed guess, based on his other work. Think about John chapter 2, where Jesus goes to a wedding, a wedding at Cana, and the hosts of the wedding are about to be horribly embarrassed by running out of wine. And so Jesus' mother comes to him, informs him of this situation, and what ends up happening is that Jesus changes these six big containers of water into wine. And he doesn't make just some mediocre wine. He makes the very best wine. And it's confessed to be the best wine by the master of ceremonies, the guy who's organizing and running things at the wedding. So he made the very best. He filled a real need, and he did it with excellent work, and he brought joy to all the people at the wedding. I think this characterizes all of Jesus' work, including the work 
that he did before he started his official ministry when he was 30 years old. Because he worked heartily to serve the Lord in his work, to glorify him in his work. Just as God at creation was able to look at his works and say, this is good. He saw and said, it is good. And later he was able to see after everything had been created, it's very good. Just as God was able to do that, Jesus was able to look at his work and say, it's good. It's very good. And Jesus calls us to follow him and to do the same. Now, at times you will still find work unsatisfying. You will find it hard. That's just the nature of living in a fallen world. But when you follow Jesus, the end of our labor is not futility. There's meaning in what you do, even when it's hard. And at the end of our labor, we find not death and emptiness, but rest. Rest with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will one day return to bring uh, his glorious new creation into reality here on earth. Let us live our lives as a testimony, as a witness that we believe that that is actually going to happen. Live our lives in hope so that when people see us and the way that we work and the reason that we work, they will long for that as well. They will long for a renewed creation and a renewed and restored relationship with their creator. Let us live that way. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that you are not like the gods of the Greeks or the gods of the Babylonians. Lord, you are a God who works. You are a God who has not created us to be your slaves, but you've created us in your image to reflect your character and nature. You have given us inherent worth and dignity in our being. And you have given us work, Lord good work. May we live and work in our day-to-day, -day, at our workplaces and our families, reflecting who you are and what we do. Let us not live a self-centered life, but a God-centered life. Lord, rescue us by your son, Jesus, um, and may we follow him. Give us your spirit so that we will have a renewed and redeemed life and a renewed and redeemed view of our work. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.